0: Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news, and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and we will be jumping into this week's news segment with Adam Boileau in just a moment. And then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview with two of the founders of Airlock Digital, David Cottingham and Daniel Shell. And yeah, this sponsor interview I think is really, really great. It's really interesting. Uh, Airlock is known as an allow listing company, but really it's a little bit deeper than that. They do host hardening to prevent the use of things like lolbins and things like that as well. So it's less pure allow listing and more what I'd call execution control. Uh, Anyway, they have built some new controls into the product around MS Build. Uh, Attackers will sometimes use it to compile and run code without committing anything to disk. And yeah, when they rolled it out to customers, they did get hits on it. So uh, those hits came from APT crews using this technique. Uh, Adam Boileau apparently also uses this <laughs> technique because when I told him about this feature uh, in Airlock, he he, he became sad. Uh, but anyway, the whole discussion is really interesting. Uh, we talk about how you can really only stop this stuff with execution restrictions. You just can't create a catch-all detection for the mass enterprise market that will do this. Uh, so all in all, five stars, great information interview and it's coming up after this week's news segment with Adam bylow which starts now. And Adam, the first thing we're going to talk about this week is the White House has released its long-awaited like cybersecurity strategy and uh all in all, I got to say it looks pretty good.
1: Yeah, it, it's uh, surprisingly sensible and you know, there's a there's a lot in it, right? There's a lot of, of things that they're going to have to, you know, try and achieve. There's a lot of moving parts, but as a guidance for where they're trying to go, it's it's pretty good. um there's a number of kind of central pillars that make up uh, the strategy. There is defense of critical infrastructure, which obviously is a thing that's been getting a lot of focus. There is disruption and dismantling uh, of threat actors. Obviously, we've seen uh, some some hound release in the past, but making that a core pillar, I, I think is a good move. Then there's some you know kind of adjustment to make the market better do what it needs to in terms of making companies. Uh, you know, think about the products and services that they're offering. There's the usual kind of R&D and investment and resilience and building better technology. And then, of course, international partnerships, very important because we now have, you know, global cybercrime being part of this uh, ecosystem rather than just, you know, spooks and punk kids.
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole document's only like 38 pages long. Like a lot of it is just the standard cybersecurity platitudes and, you know, policymakers saying the sort of things that policymakers say about the internet being important and critical infrastructure and blah, blah, blah. Um, But when you actually get to the meat of it, It's pretty good. And, you know, I I did find the disruption and dismantling part interesting because there's a heavy focus on law enforcement doing this. Uh, And obviously we did just see an FBI sort of law enforcement driven dismantling of, uh, what was it, Hive, right? Um, So, yeah. Yeah interesting stuff. Now, Adam, last week, we actually spoke about this idea. Uh, you know, they, they were clearly signaling, US officials were clearly signaling that something like this was coming. Uh, we spoke about this idea that the US government is looking to shift liability for seriously insecure products onto the vendors, right? So they won't be able to absolve themselves from lawsuits simply by writing a EULA that allows them to throw the end user into a log chipper, right? <laughs> which is ten. Which is sort of how those things tend to read. Um, now, at the time, I said, look, I think this is going to clog up the courts system basically and spawn uh, 10 million lawsuits but the way that they're looking to address this actually looks pretty sensible.
1: Uh, Yes I mean this is not an immediate process right this is kind of signaling to organizations that they do have to start you know planning for the possibility of being you know actually. Well I mean mean, they
0: specifically say in the strategy they want congress to write laws to enable this.
1: Yeah, so I'm like, it's not an immediate thing, but it is, you know, kind of it's inbound and everyone's going to have to start thinking about how they would deal with that. Uh, and I think I was at Kevin Colley's reporting where he makes the point that, you know, they have the sort of, you know, they want transparency and they want, you know, the market to operate better with better information from organizations about the security incidents that they are the victims of and all the other things going on. But at the same time, uh, you know increasing the amount of liability they're going to be exposed to does have the potential to make them less likely to share a little bit less transparent that and was so, tom actually you ran oh, i was Tom. sorry to
0: kevin but i mean he may have may have written something similar but that was uh, <laughs> that was tom's whole newsletter last week basically
1: yeah yeah so they like that makes a whole bunch of sense and the suggestion that you know transparently transparency and more openness now with potential of stick down the line you know sets the you know, the path that they are heading towards pretty well, but, you know, does give organisations a a chance to plan for that rather than as you say immediately throwing you know all of the courts being filled with people you know mad about their pulse vpns or whatever
0: i no longer think that's going to happen though right because because they've actually scoped this pretty narrowly and it's quite sensible what they're doing so what they're going to do is create like a safe harbor for companies that do things in a sensible way and they cite examples right like if they use something like a nist Uh, secure software development framework and adhere to that and do a few of these things, then they will still be protected under their end-user licence agreements, right? It's only when they're not complying with these safe harbour provisions that it will be possible for people to sue them. Now, when I read that, I thought, okay that will actually solve some problems, right? It will result in companies, you know, it's enough of a carrot. It's a carrot and stick yes, approach, yep, right? And the exactly. carrot is a pretty juicy one, which is if you can comply with these sensible things that you should be doing anyway, you get better legal protections under the law. So I think that's a really, really cool thing. And I think it will do something to mop up some of the code quality related disasters that we've been experiencing over the last few years, things like all of these vulnerable fi- file transfer gateways and appliances, things like VPN and edge devices that are just really badly constructed. And, um, you know, it's it's sort of clear, and this is something that you've mentioned many times that they're not doing enough, uh, you know, vulnerability discovery in their own products, right? Uh, they're not doing enough testing of their own products. So, you know, you could construct some safe harbor provisions that would improve that side of things. And I think that's really what they're trying to do here. And I, I, I think it's I think it's a good idea. I think it'll take a long time to bear fruit, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly adding requirements that suggest that perhaps more QA testing, more security-focused testing, better documentation of the security properties of systems, you know, those are the sorts of things that you would put in you know as things that would help them you know defend themselves from a bit of liability and you know absolutely that's going to help you know the idea that we've got security vendors shipping appliances meant to be run in a privileged context you know not even using you know memory corruption exploit mitigation techniques that have been kicking around and you know in hello the hello Palo Alto Networks years.
0: Linux on MIPS
1: it, it, well yeah exactly <laughs> that's the kind of thing that that I'm imagining
0: but see that stuff I don't know I don't know whether or not this would address that, right? And the other big glaring issue that this does nothing to address is when Microsoft releases some powerful new platform um, but doesn't really give you the tools to appropriately secure it. So one example of that is, you know, a couple flashback, you know, two, three years ago, there were all of these malicious OAuth applications yes, proliferating yeah. in organizations, and there were some controls that you could use at the command line through PowerShell to try to mitigate that. But Microsoft made it quite difficult, and as a result, a lot of bad stuff happened. Another example might be Microsoft's long, long delay in turning off legacy authentication methods for 0365 tenants, which made multi-factor authentication kind of pointless, right? It took them a very, very, very long time. I mean, this will do nothing to address that. And even if they weren't going to turn it off, I mean, they could have run some audit, um, among its customers, it's a hosted service, and said, hey, you're not using legacy authentication methods for email, so we're just going to turn that off. But they didn't do that. They did not do that. And, you know, again, that's got nothing to do with code quality or NIST development frameworks. It's just a business decision, and it's a bad one that's against everyone's interests, and it's not possible to address here. But that said, I think this will do something to improve the quality of... Uh, of software over maybe a 10 15 20 year time frame right
1: yeah which i mean anything we can do uh, is going to help i think uh, you know given how much of a long tail there is of nasty old tech but like the point that you make around someone like microsoft you know modern you know very rapidly moving saas and cloud vendors you know there's not much that can help them uh, i mean the, i guess the main thing that you know, with 365 and azure is that you know, you've kind of got a degree of safety in numbers, at least if there's a catastrophic flaw in Microsoft's things. Probably you're not the highest priority on the list for someone who's got a sweet 365 bug. And on the other hand, if it breaks for everybody, you're going to inherit the, you know, the the pressure that gets put on them to fix it. So if a... Too big to fail vendors, you know, like Microsoft or or, or Google. You know, you could—they're kind of in a separate category, um, and the you know all of the mid-tier of people making bad software, and you know the the oracles of this world. You know, those are the ones that uh, you know perhaps would be in a position where they can't shift their liability. You know, can't do everything right enough to avoid liability in the you know medium term. So both of those seem good to me. I suppose.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I guess ultimately, what's going to happen is everybody will move to the Microsoft model of writing actually quite you know generally uh, secure code uh, that can be used to do awful things because of business strategy. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Hooray! Hooray!
0: Uh, now, CyberScoop has a report up talking about uh, some calls to reform the Section 702 surveillance power uh, in the United States. There, You know, there's a there's like a Civil Liberties Oversight Board or something, uh, you know, in the US government that said, hey, like, there's a lot of compliance issues here. Um, you know, there's a lot of queries um, against the 702 data set, looking for data that was um, uh, incidentally collected against against Americans, and that's not real good. Maybe we should actually toss 702 and rewrite uh, this law, essentially. So I think what there, there's a bit of a push here to rewrite the law into something with better protections, which I personally think will probably fail this go-round, but maybe not on the next one, if that makes sense. So there's 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 a reform push here that looks reasonable.
1: Yes, I mean you know the control of these kinds of surveillance powers and balancing them and understanding how they have been used, you know where they were used, for example, without enough oversight or you know not really in line with the intent of it. You know is a thing that all of this oversight process is meant to catch. Uh, I I think I'm with you in that. You know, eventually we might, but this time around, I mean, the, you know, every time we've seen these arguments happen, which they happen every few years, um, you know, the push has always been how important this is for the the intelligence agencies and law enforcement and so on. Uh, And I mean, in this case, the Biden administration has also come out in support of it uh, last week. So, you know.
0: In support of what? 702 or in in, in support of reform?
1: In support of 702 rather than than necessarily changing it. Uh, But... I mean, there has been some evidence of misuse outside kind of what people would wish and yeah, eventually. But I think, yeah, you're right. Not this time. I mean, it seems like the FBI
0: just YOLO's queries into it. Um, You know, it's a 702 collection platforms all the time and don't really get much back because that's not what really the data collected under 702 is not likely to yield that many results. But it seems like they just YOLO queries into it anyway, just in case something might turn up. And that's not what it's for. No, I
1: mean, no, but yeah, you can see, you know, you give law enforcement tools uh, like they're going to want to use them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, And speaking of like surveillance abuses, the Secret Service and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement uh, in the the United States are just using stingrays without getting the required court orders just because, yeah, again, just YOLO.
1: Yeah, it did seem that there was some confusion about exactly what their obligations were, you know, in what circumstances they can use cell site simulators uh, and kind of what level of oversight. And even I think one one of the examples was given was like a local county judge being asked to do the warrants, you know, to approve the warrant when the Secret Service or whoever were helping out local law enforcement. And he's like, I don't, I don't really understand what this means. Why I don't see even why you need a warrant? Just get on with it kind of thing. So yeah, not exactly what we're looking for. Uh, when, uh, you know, you're no. running dragnet cell surveillance. Uh, yeah, I mean, I
0: feel like uh, these two stories, you put them together and it might be time for, you know, the oversight hounds to be released to be <laughs> a little bit, Adam, because, you know, it, it, there's an ebb and a flow with this yes. sort of stuff, right, always. And it feels like um, perhaps things have got a little loose lately, just generally speaking.
1: <laughs> Everyone's and, got, yeah, um, got a little too, little too used to these powers, perhaps, yes.
0: Yeah, it might be an area that the feds want to want to pay a bit of attention to if if possible, right? Like there's a lot going on at the moment, but if they can do something there, that'd be good um just generally you know take a look at oversight on 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 surveillance and see what they can do this process will take years you know because trying to figure out how to actually fix this sort of thing um it's quite hard i mean there's people at one extreme end of the spectrum that say we need to throw away all these powers you know and then there's the people at the other end who say no no absolute access to authorities at all times but really Boringly, where we should be is somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Not very exciting, <laughs> but that's what's necessary.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, we spoke about the LastPass hack last week, and we did got to hand it to them, <laughs> uh, because whoever did this, whoever did this, did it uh, did it quite well. And, and the way that they did it is, there was mention of this last week, is when they got evicted from LastPass's network, they managed to get into an engineer's home network through their Plex Somehow, right now, when you and I spoke about that, I had a friend reach out to me, who said, "Hmm, Plex, you say, because they were privy to some details of an investigation where someone's home Plex was owned. Uh, this was in an attack chain that was targeting crypto assets, and it was, and they specifically mentioned it was post-authentication remote code exec on Plex, and it was a North Korea thing." So this wound up going out in our last edition of Seriously Risky Business. We just mentioned, hey, you know, it's been flagged to us that this is a known TTP of North Korean threat actors. And we have some more details, Adam. Uh, (laughs) Tell us about the Plex component of this attack chain.
1: Yes, uh, the last pass was now come out and said that uh, the technique used was uh, a python like deserialization bug uh, in plex that had been patched three years ago basically where if you are an admin of a plex server you've got you know web-based admin you can leverage that up into remote code execution you know via fiddling some paths and uploading some uh, uh, you know some Python that triggers uh, deserialization. So is yeah, that post- your long
0: way of saying it was post-auth RCE? That is post-auth
1: patched <laughs> RCE uh, interplex leading to code exec on the underlying platform. Yes, that that is what I am saying, and it sounds very much like uh, the thing that. Uh, your friend had seen the Norks doing. so Yeah, mm. so it
0: looks like it was the North Koreans in the drawing room with the Plex Post-Auth RCE. Um, <laughs> but isn't it, you know, I mean, we said that, you know, it could have been APTs, it could have been Crypto Kids, and it's like, it's both, yeah. because North the North Koreans, Koreans are essentially <laughs> Crypto thief, a- thief APTs, right? So, <laughs> I mean, you would have to say, I mean, look, there's no such thing as a smoking gun with this sort of stuff unless you're actually the incident responder, but you would have to think... that's that's too much of a coincidence, right?
1: I mean, LastPass is a a pretty juicy target. Uh, And if you are in the business of making money, then it gives you a heap of options. But I mean, you know, uh, if
0: this were some sort of espionage thing, like LastPass is, by and large, look, I know some enterprises use it, but it's mostly used by consumers, right? And I would think if you're targeting crypto accounts, it would be a good place to go.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think like you know, the uh, you know Chinese APTs going after RSA to get into Lockheed Martin, kind of different category to going after LastPass to steal crypto. Yeah, makes makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, now this is another one that I first read about in Catalan Kimpanu's reporting for us in Risky Business News, uh, but Dan Gooden has a write up over at uh, Ars Technica. Um, he's do, he's done a write up on some research out of ESET looking at a uh, UEFI. Uh, trojan basically called black lotus which looks pretty badass and works on windows 11
1: yes so this is a commercially available in the like hacker underground uh boot kit you know kind of a piece of malware that will live in the early boot part uh, of your system and can bypass uh you know fully patched functional secure boot which you know all of those components have kind of existed but seeing it packaged up as a thing you can buy and use uh increases the likelihood that we will see people using. Bootkit malware uh post post compromise and you know for a lot of people that process of you know, recovering from an intrusion does not include throwing out your computers like yeah it did, it did in the early 80s when we didn't understand how computer viruses well, work did and we more do recently
0: i mean you know the one i'm talking about there was a big one um, yes so i'm
1: like in yeah you know which you're...
0: isn't public which is why I'm, I'm being a little bit vague but there was a major apt incident. Yes. Um, that involved a lot of computers being thrown away that has been kept somewhat quiet, surprisingly.
1: (laughs) Yes, and so in an APT, and a nation-state context, yes, we see that. But if you could imagine that just common garden ransomware operators would then go through bootkitting. And at that point, it's not only we're ransoming your data, we're also going to give you the keys that lets you make it safe to continue to use the hardware. That's an extra lever that I could totally see people starting to pull. Um, I mean
0: we've been talking about UEFI compromises for over a decade
1: yeah at least. right if, if like we've been more talking more.
0: about it for a long time but I think it's interesting that now we're actually starting to see them bubble up in the wild. My guess is that I, like that you know government- backed attackers have been using this stuff yes. for a long for a long, long, time. long time. I mean we've yes. seen, uh, evidence of how do I say it, and not say it? I mean, some some have definitely been using it, but I would suspect that Five Eyes have been using it as well for quite a yes. long time, right? Because it's it's been the the way to do this for quite yeah. a while. I mean,
1: there's been stuff like that, and when the Ant catalog got leaked, and some of the cool yeah. toys that the DSD and and uh, other Five Eyes entities had been using and, and running, like a lot of those were in the hardware, you know. In yeah, Ethernet, I mean, Snowden leaks were yeah.
0: Snowden leaks were 2013 too. So yeah. that's nearly so a decade ago. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. Uh, uh, it's, the time just flies, doesn't it, <laughs> It certainly um, does. But I guess I guess what's interesting too about this is that I don't think we're very well equipped to deal with this threat. No. I mean, I know that there is one company, a startup, Eclipsium, and we often talk about their research um, yes. because they do a lot of research into this sort of stuff. And they are uh, you know, a, a startup that is spun up to really deal with this type of threat. I don't know how good this stuff is. I mean, maybe there's some users out there who are going to tell me it's fantastic, but this is a hard problem to solve. And when I can only top of mind, think of one company that's, that's being spun up to deal with this. And I don't know what their revenue looks like. I don't know how successful they are in the market. I mean, my guess is that the high security buyers, defense industrial base, maybe banking, you know, DODs, they're probably going to want stuff like this, but you know, it's not a mainstream solution yet, and I feel yeah. like we're on the cusp of this turning into a mainstream problem.
1: Certainly, yeah, I, I agree. Like, this in the wild, uh, you know, in the mainstream being used by financial crime operators, like, that would change that bit of the market pretty well. I and mean, I know other... So I was thinking, you know, like Darren Bilby, our friend uh, Darren from Google, you know, they had been working on firmware assurance, you know, in all of the various embedded computers inside your computer for a very long time. Like, he's been at Google a mm. long, long last time, and I know he's been working on it there. So that, you know... In certain environments, that has been a concern for a very, very long time. But as you say, in the like general, you know, um,
0: general commercial enterprise, IT yeah, enterprise
1: yeah. market, it's not a thing that you know. Even just understanding what computers we have, full stop, is hard enough. Let alone what embedded micros there are, where their firmware comes from, how you assure it, what state it's in, being able to attest it. Like there's there's a lot of parts there that are just not mature yet.
0: Yeah, so you've got to go long on Eclipsium or long on log chippers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. second, second wood chipper <laughs> reference in the, uh, in the show this week. But, <laughs> but, um, um,
1: the only other thing point I wanted to make about this Black Lotus thing was that um, uh, it was interesting because it's using an actual vulnerability in um, secure boot. As well, this is what this I was. Process.
0: This is, is actually what I was going to tie off as well. I think the notable thing we've seen UEFI rootkits yes. before. The thing that makes this one interesting is that it is that you can use it on
1: systems running Win eleven. Yes, Windows eleven with you know TPMS and yeah. you know and secure boot, and that it has a mechanism to bypass that and then sets itself up to not then need that vulnerability, and then although the vulnerability they are using is patched. Uh, because of the complexity of actually deploying cryptographic controls and so on, um, you know, without bricking everybody's hardware, a lot of the, you know, you can kind of revert back to older versions or that this doesn't, you know, this issue has not actually been remediated effectively, even though there are patches available, which is, you know, bootstrapping is hard and bootstrapping securely with crypto, etc. is even worse and bricking you know, 100 million machines is also not a thing anyone wants to pull the trigger on and, you know, auto-update or whatever um, in case yeah. it goes horribly wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And this is uh, being sold as like a post-exploitation kit, right? Yes. You just you just bring it along with you once you've got access and, yeah, yeah I'm guessing you live, need system-level access to, oh, to yeah, use yeah. this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: you need privileged access, yes.
0: Well, that is all very interesting stuff. Let's mm-hmm. move on and uh, some good news. GitHub has made secret scanning. Uh, secret scanning alerts available for all public repos. So if someone commits a API key or something into one of your GitHub repos, you can get an alert. Uh, this is very good. Um, and, uh, you know, we think it's a great thing. But I will just say, I, like, so the Truffle Hog people, they sponsored one. So this is a disclaimer. They did sponsor one episode of Snake Oilers last year. Uh, but, I, you know, as best, I, I can't remember, but I don't think they're a sponsor in an ongoing capacity but i will say that i agree with them which is that scanning for it in your github repos is great but that's not the only place these things turn up right like they turn up in your slack they turn up in your s3 buckets they turn up absolutely everywhere but it is still good news that github is taking steps to address this problem where it can
1: yes i mean github and you know, obviously has a lot of market penetration of for developers and they do have you know visibility that's pretty unparalleled there I mean, remember of, when
0: microsoft bought github and people quit in protest yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway funny time <laughs> um
1: but i think you know, one of the things that's important with git repos is that deleting things out of them is quite hard uh, and as attackers quite often you now we'll run across some code repo and there's no secrets in it then but they're were yeah, previously versioning. and you, a versioning because system systems, uh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, like yeah. that is a it's a very useful thing because it's hard to get them out of there whereas like if you just a case of deleting from a non-version S3 bucket or something it's a little more straightforward to clean up um, so yeah anything that helps developers uh, understand that they have not actually deleted the key material <laughs> is useful
0: Yeah. Now let's talk about some research out of what looks to be mostly German universities uh, that has looked at a wireless protocol or a wireless signal that emanates from DJI drones. It turns out that every time you fly a DJI drone, it is broadcasting not only its position, but the position of the person operating it, which normally under normal circumstances, not really a problem. But if you're using it on a battlefield to do artillery correction this is probably not what you want. Um, so DJI had insisted that this uh, signal was encrypted. Turns out it's not, uh, and that they got caught in a lie uh, on that. But the background to this is really interesting, right? Because it turns out the reason it broadcasts these signals is because DJI offers a, uh, a special um, technology to regulators and law enforcement and whatnot where they can set up a little antenna and basically get intelligence on drones and also the location of the operators so you might have someone who keeps doing dangerous stuff with a drone you know law enforcement or a regulator would use this to actually find the operator of the drone so this was a known issue in Ukraine when Ukrainians started using these drones on the battlefield, uh, they did complain to DJI that uh, Russia was using this technology to actually uh, locate the operators of the drones and drop artillery on them and, and, and stuff like that. So in terms of changing battlefield equations, this research won't really do much here. But you suggested to me, Adam, that the Ukrainians might be able to actually use this uh, uh, this research to their benefit with some deception.
1: Yes, I mean obviously, um, if you're capable of receiving these signals and parsing them, and they're not encrypted in some mechanism, it makes sense that you would then be able to make your own ones. Uh, now that the researchers at the university have figured out how the protocol works and and what is contained, what's contained within it, so yeah, I mean the electronic warfare metal says, well, let's just transmit some signals that say that uh, the drone operator is over there in that Russian position, and uh, you yeah, know they can shell themselves for a bit.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I mean actually, I didn't think of that because the. They're not so good at deconfliction, um, no. as far as I as far as I can tell, just from reading uh, reading what's what's published about that. But I mean, also you could just um, you know spin up a signal that says there's you know you've got fifty drones drones up when really you're only using one to do the arty cor- uh, corrections. So you know it is a it is a interesting. It's an interesting thought that you could reverse this and then try to create realistic looking signals to confuse Russian electronic warfare attempts,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, Data breach of interest, which is a firearms auctions website in the United States, apparently had all of its data walked. And we know this because that data turned up in like an insecure online storage uh, being controlled by, you know, presumably the, the attacker, but half a million people and a lot of uh, a lot of their details and you know we've talked about this before you don't really want the personal details things like you know home addresses of gun owners uh, being published online because then someone's going to go break into the house and steal the gun
1: yes the uh, the site in question is like gunauction.com or something like that apparently it's been around for a very long time like 25 years uh, and it sounds like their data security practices are also roughly from 25 years ago because they had plain text passwords in there as well so that's a cherry on top as well as stealing guns you can uh, pass through reuse into whatever else and uh, onwards to to great victory I'm sure
0: I think something like this is a bigger problem if it happens somewhere with tighter gun regulation to be honest because yeah. I don't think it's terribly challenging for people to get their hands on guns in America <laughs> um, I did think I do vaguely recall we saw something similar here and that's a problem because you know you'll pay a lot of money for a handgun in Australia on the black market I mean like 10,000 or something you know like it's a, it's a lot
1: yeah, and so having access to know where guns might be, you know, versus in, in the US where you could just pick a random house in the street and you're probably just as likely to find a gun inside <laughs> of the deck. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it obviously much more important in heavily regulated markets like Australia and New Zealand. Um, yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Still still not the best, though, right? Yeah, like, still even, not the best. even in when it happens in the United States. Now, uh, there is some new malware turning up on ATMs. In Mexico, that looks really polished. It's called FixS, and you know it pops a custom menu where you can just say empty cassette and things like that. Uh, no word on how this malware is getting onto ATMs in the first place. Probably via physical access, but this affects a whole a whole range. Any any Windows based ATM that uses the uses the SenxFS APIs. It'll work on it, right? So um, that,
1: that's the real joy of this one is that we've seen ATM malware before, but usually you end up tuning it for a particular bank or a particular type of ATM. So having one that like uses the standard APIs that a whole bunch of the vendors use, uh, that's kind of you know that's good work. Whoever whoever wrote this, I will hand it to them. That's yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> I was, was going to recycle that joke. Yes,
1: <laughs> you know, do having, you
0: got to hand it to him. I yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: having been in that position of like, I've got code exec on an ATM. How do I actually you know make it jackpot? Like that step is fiddly and boring, and so. Yeah having a like generic api one that you can use everywhere like that's that's legit useful i wouldn't mind a copy of this be handy
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure a listener's got a copy yes. someone send it over to Adam yeah, get just, him Get him.
1: point me to Hash or something and off we go
0: <laughs> now we'll just do a real quick ransomware wrap uh, you know the usual disclaimer I put on this is this is not exhaustive right because there is just story after story that crosses our desk every week of ransomware attacks hitting hospitals and hitting you know all sorts of stuff but the most noteworthy news is the US government has uh, issued an alert I think that was a, yeah FBI and CISA alert saying that the royal ransomware is um, finding its way onto critical infrastructure networks in the United States that's the long and short of it
1: isn't it yeah yeah basically yes critical infrastructure healthcare that kind of thing and i you know apropos of our willingness to go and smack ransomware crews upside their electronic heads these days you know i don't know that i'd want to have a advisory from scissor saying that i was a critical infrastructure targeting ransomware operator these days so
0: yeah that's how you get cybercommed and not and not fbi'd right yeah exactly Um, so so that's interesting and um you know, there's a crew that uh, broke into some health network in Pennsylvania. This one's made a big splash, uh, certainly on social media and in the headlines. Uh, but it's the Black Cat crew. Um, they've been posting uh, pictures of women's breasts who were being treated for breast cancer. Just, oh, you know, they always find a way, they do. you know, to yeah. make it worse. Like, they always find a way to plumb a new depth.
1: Yep, that's they certainly do. And that's that's just super gross, you know, really... Yeah.
0: i mean i'd imagine most women would dislike this yes right but i would imagine that for a percentage of them they would find this extremely traumatic
1: yeah yeah exactly like i mean you know it's such a jarring juxtaposition like of being sexualized in a context where you had no like you're there for medical care you know it's just yeah it's gross
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, this goes beyond release the hounds and into yeah. ser- firmly into throw these people off a bridge, please. We yes. should write We should write to our mate Andrew Boyd at CIA, see yeah, what yeah, he can do. Yeah, 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 see what he can do. <laughs> you know, assemble a team. Come on, let's go. Let's get these guys. And yeah, there's a uh, Barcelona hospital uh, too that's been hit. Uh, do we know which strain? Uh, yeah, Ransom House. Um, but it's causing a, you know, it's, a, it's an 819 bed hospital and it's just caused an absolute disaster there. So they're really struggling with it. But, you know, just scum of the earth. I know. Yeah, yeah. we've said it before nothing really new here oh and we mentioned the oakland uh ransomware attack a couple times and um you know they're they're facing data extortion didn't pay and now that data's been published
1: yeah, it's rough for everybody involved in that and yeah my sympathy to you know all the people responding and helping out uh, with those incidents
0: yeah uh moving on, we've got like a write up of some OAuth bugs. Uh, Booking.com's OAuth implementation was not very good and someone has done a teardown and write-up on it. And uh, I think Booking.com has since come out and said, well, you know, no one actually used this technique against us. But, you know, you would have heard me often talking, Adam, about how OAuth implementations are quite easy to get wrong. You know, we even saw this when Apple did its own implementation of OAuth and tied it to their biometric scanner for logging into things like Apple accounts and whatever. Um, that was some interesting research that, that we talked about years ago. You know, it's just hard. It's just hard to do this. And this is just one more example of classic OAuth bugs, uh, uh, you know, being, finding their way into prod.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think if you know if you're a web pen tester, someone who reviews these kinds of systems, you know, this is a great write up to read, not because the bugs are, you know, particularly unique. I mean the guts of it is OAuth um, off to Facebook and back uh, hitting an open redirect in Booking.com so you can control where the redirects from the OAuth flows come back into booking.com and then back out to you as the attacker, uh, so that you can, you know, steal tokens and credentials, etc. Uh so relatively straightforward, but just underscores the importance of, you know, what would otherwise perhaps be a low, you know, a not super exciting bug class, open redirect uh, in someone's website being then used to chain it up to account takeover. So, and also it's just a really well-written blog post. Like there are explanations yeah. of the OAuth concepts and the diagrams are well done. It's just a you know good quality write-up and well worth a read, uh, you know, if you're an attacker or if you're a you know, pen tester or if you just want to refresh your memory uh, on how something as stupid and complicated as OAuth does actually work.
0: Although it's got better, like people's implementations have got better, like OAuth issues aren't as prevalent as they used to be. But as I say, that one's worth checking out because it is just a, a really good write-up of a classic yeah. implementation yes. fail yeah, on, exactly. on OAuth, right? Um, and, you know, this isn't to, if anyone from Booking.com is listening, we're not trying to have a go at you. It's like these things happen, right? Um, and that's the point. And that's why we're talking about it. Uh, Dan Gooden at Ars also is reporting that um, Google is adding client-side encryption to Gmail and Calendar. Uh, which is kind of interesting um, i mean what do you think of this cuz i think client side encryption for jet well is this like a pgp style functionality um, where i could send you an encrypted email adam like what's the what's the go here
1: no but essentially this is just google having the web apps do crypto tied to your account uh, in the client and then shipping encrypted blobs up to Google to store as opposed to, you know, Google just storing them however they feel like on the back end. And this is less a control that, like, you know, it's not end-to-end in the way that PGP, you know, is or was. It's more... uh, So hang on, I can
0: can now encrypt my email archive at rest?
1: Kind of, yeah, basically, yes. You can imagine that, which is, you know, it's useful for some things. It's mostly helping enterprises that have compliance obligations more than practical, real world. I mean it adds layers of controls, I guess, and it lay it facilitates segregation of duties at the Google back end, right? Because, you know, if the data's lying around in the clear, then, you know, the kind of amount of assurance you can get about, you know, who has access to it or whatever, you can reduce the amount of people involved, the amount of different teams, if like the team that maintains you know, the web apps that run Google Calendar are a different team that maintains the data storage and then another team maintains the key mat. Like this, you know, you can segregate duties more effectively, provide more assurance to customers. And I think Google also provides a mechanism with G Suite, with Google Workspace in general, where customers can take over some of that key management process themselves through an API. And that, you know, does provide some, you know, practical assurance. But I mean, overall, more encryption, generally gooder. Uh, and Gudurra, yeah, yes. <laughs> analysis here, at risky business headquarters. Gudurra. Um, but I mean, but... I can see, I can
0: see the value in like being able to uh, encrypt my my Gmail archive, because that's the sort of thing that tends to be
1: stolen and leaked. Yeah, but then it's you know it's not encrypted for you, like, it's encrypted for everybody else. And if I can get a copy of your mail archive out of Google, like I kind of already. Probably already did some good stuff, you know well Whereas maybe, if I just you, know, if, over you just your account, phished,
0: if you just fished me like yes, that's not going to help you. you need to actually no. have malware on my machine, so it does make it harder
1: yeah it, it does like it it makes it more complicated and it's you know, it, it's good progress. But you either have to
0: have malware on my machine my machine or you need to be writing through my browser somehow
1: yeah, basically yes, but I mean that's also kind of been the case anyway well, if For you're using u two f yeah
0: kind of yes, yeah. So, but well, that's a big if. Yeah. many people use it. No, I, I, look, I see. I do see where you're coming from, right? Which is if you had to choose between doing this or using U2F, you'd use U2F because that's yes. going to get you further, right?
1: Yes, exactly. When, and, you know, and if I'm in Google already, like if I've broken into Google, I've already got a lot of other problems. Yeah, but I'm,
0: that's not the thing that I'm thinking of. What yes. I'm thinking of here is someone somehow gets your session info, right? Yeah. And logs in as you. Uh, comes in as you and just, like, dumps your archive. Yes. That's, yes and that, exactly. that's what this addresses. Uh,
1: to a certain extent, yes. Like, it makes that more complicated.
0: Yeah. Makes it depending more complicated. On, Look at you, Depending you on understand.
1: how the key material works and blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You
0: know. I just love it, you know. You keep popping back up with a caveat, you know. <laughs> like those bowling pin things that you punch, you know. The... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, I just wanted to mention this one. This is a Zach Whitaker yarn from TechCrunch. Uh, and he's written up... Really, he's written up a a USPS, US Postal Service process that is enabling a lot of cybercrime and fraud, where it turns out it's really easy to redirect mail um, via USPS. You can do it online or you can go in-store and fill in a form and say, yes, my name is, uh, is, is Joe Snrub and I live over here now. And you fill in the form and they don't ask for ID and that can be used in all manner of ways. Like you can redirect someone's mail to receive their credit card statements and whatever and capture their PII that way. Or I guess if you're buying stolen goods, um, you know, from online stores with stolen credit card numbers and stuff, you might be able to redirect them around a little bit that way. Uh, But the point is that this is a terrible process and fixing it would make things a little bit harder for criminals and USPS isn't doing that and that's bad.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great example of, you know, not a cyber thing, like not a computer thing, but that is actually fundamentally tied into the kind of identity world, uh, you know, of everything online these days. And I think you know, the comparison to SIM swapping, you know, where no one really thought about how important the phone company's management of your SIM identity was until cryptocurrency. I don't think you can say nobody. Okay, well, because I, mean,
0: okay. <laughs> I do remember saying quite a few times that all you're doing is putting the onus for authentication onto the telco help desks, and this will yes. end badly. Yes, and, uh, and, and saying did, that yes. quite a lot, quite a few <laughs> years ago, Adam. But yeah. yes, so not <laughs> yeah. no, but and I was not the only. This isn't like yay no. me, look at me, I was so ahead. But I was not the only one saying this.
1: Yes, yeah, I mean, telco's as an identity provider it was never a great plan, but you know, no, the same kind of applies to the postal system where you know it's a legacy you know social structure that we have then bootstrapped a bunch of other things on top of uh, and then used it to manage identity and fraud and whatever else. But and I, and I totally understand are.
0: why they wouldn't want to change this because it would be very expensive, right, to yes. roll out a process to do some sort of identity, identity verification that's going to be robust enough to get around people who are actually doing fraud. That yes. will be hard, but that's not to say that they shouldn't do it because the current setup is just insane.
1: Yeah, I mean, really, the, the key saving grace here is that this does at least, you know, it's kind of slow fraud versus doing things online. Mm. You know, we're changing, you know, doing sim, SIM swapping or whatever you can do kind of programmatically or very, very quickly. Whereas if you actually have to roll to a post office and fill in a form with a pen and put it in a box, you know, because you can do this online, but you have to pay a buck. So... You know yeah. that's your that's your impediment is your Ford has to be worth a dollar ten US or something, um, <laughs> versus your time to go to the store and fill it in you know on paper. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just funny how these processes interact. Like we have these these big meta systems that run our societies, and you know we don't always stop to think how they all interact with each other.
0: Now, Adam, I have some breaking news: four channels now have AI models thanks to Meta. <laughs> So like, who's the group of people who you really don't want to have access to powerful machine learning models? Probably they are in that list of top <laughs> yeah, <probably>. five, right? <laughs> yes. And yes, uh, uh. tell us what happened
1: here. Uh, yeah, so Facebook uh, have a large language model, so similar to like ChatGPT, those kinds of things. Spicy Autocomplete, I think is our house yes. terminology for yeah, those systems. Right. Um, so yeah, Facebook, of course, has uh, some of these. They uh, had a program where they were making available some of their large language models to researchers and other people who had to kind of you know fill in a form or whatever. Uh, yes, someone has taken one of their models uh, and posted it on 4chan for everyone else to download. So now... You know, people have and can run on their own without any of the other kind of like supervisory controls and monitoring, you know, some of these large language models uh, that they've developed.
0: I'm curious to see what sort of uses we get out of it. Like if you want to see what the abuses are going to look like, like this is the time to, to see it as opposed to like five years from now. Like that's, if you're going to true. have a model leak, it's, it's better that it leaks now, I think. Probably, probably. Yeah.
1: And I think like this idea of pirating people's models you know, is the thing we're gonna see more and more of because it makes like this becomes intellectual property and investment in the training process and all of the compute and blah, 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 blah. And then if you can just steal the model at the end and do something else with it, you've kind of gained some economic advantage rather than you know, beyond just, you know, using it for, for channing. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting crime crime category of the future.
0: <laughs> Hooray. Uh, and to wrap <laughs> things up, we gotta say a big old farewell to the Daily Swig. Uh, The Daily Swig was Port Swigger's news outlet. And, you know, I think where they really added the most value is they would do a lot of stories on security research and particularly stuff around, you know, web application security and stuff. Um, So, you know, they were a very valuable outlet. Like we scrape a lot of news. Uh, We scrape from like five outlets and read everything that they publish. And Daily Swig was one of them, you know, and we wouldn't, uh, always feature stuff from Daily Swig, but sometimes they would have stuff in there that was good that no one else covered. Right, so it is sad to. It's definitely sad to see them go. I'm a little bit saddened for some of the reasons why they've closed this, uh, because they specifically cite being hammered by activists as a sort of brand risk that they had to factor in when making the decision to close. Now, about halfway through last year, they wrote a story about someone who'd been banned from DEFCON and there was a controversy around him speaking at some other B-sides or something in Ohio. And uh, they decided to write this story up uh, and they offered right of reply to the person that they were writing the story about. Now, look, for those of you who don't know, that's Journalism 101. You have to offer right of reply to people when you're writing about them. Okay, otherwise it gives them a much stronger footing if they want to sue you. So you need to do this. So they did include this person's right of reply towards the end of the article. And then some people on, you know, some big brains on Twitter decided to screen cap that part of the article and complain about it loudly on Twitter, saying that they were platforming this guy. Now that's not what they were doing. They were doing journalism and it snowballed and people were calling for boycotts of Port Swigger. My reaction at that time was publicly and privately. I I wrote to some of the people who were screeching about this and I said, look, if you keep banging on about this, they'll just close the outlet because they don't need the headache and they haven't done anything wrong. And I'm really saddened that a baying mob who doesn't understand the basic process of journalism caused enough of a concern day to to, to portswigger's management for it to have factored into this decision like I saw this coming and it, it's 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 just really frustrating
1: yeah yeah it certainly it certainly is and they were you know an outlet that we consumed a lot as you said a lot of content from and the you know there really isn't an outlet there wasn't an outlet that covered web, technical web app sec in the way that they did. And of course they had access to so many, you know, great people who work at Portsuaga so in the you know on the burp team and and etc. Um, and yeah, they, they covered stuff that other people didn't and it will be, you know, sad to see them go, you know, regardless of the reasons. And as you say, you know, with you know it being motivated by in part by this, you know, just kinda makes it a bit worse.
0: So I'll just read you the quote from Port Swigger's founder. Uh, It says, The Daily Swig's remit of providing robust, editorially independent reporting carries various costs and risks to our business. We have written stories about numerous bad actors, some of whom are well-funded, and we have been obliged to pay settlements for malicious legal actions, right? So that's one problem that they've had. Uh, But then it continues. We have sometimes been targeted by activists seeking to damage our software business because they dislike our story. This reality made it harder to justify continuing with the swig. And look, honestly... It's one of the reasons why some of the sponsors of risky business will would prefer to sponsor a, a, an outlet like ours rather than spin up their own is because that reputational risk just isn't there. If we do something they don't like, they can just see sponsoring us, right? Um, and that's something that has happened uh, in the past. I'm not going to spill the details, but, you know, that's fine. Everybody's getting what they want, you know, and there's no real reputational risk there because they can just say, oh, them, you know, we don't deal with them anymore, those terrible yeah. risky business people, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, all in all, a very sad story, uh, but uh, that's uh, that's the way the mob flops. But look, you know, just because a media outlet includes comments from someone um, doesn't mean they're endorsing or platforming that person. It's called reporting. And, um, you know, you all did a silly thing. But Adam, that is it for this week's show, uh, this week's news segment anyway. Uh, everyone stand by for the sponsor interview that made Adam sad. I mean, when I told you about the MS <laughs> Build stuff, like, yeah. you were like, oh, God damn it, I've been using that stuff for years, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. That's a workhorse technique and now taken away from us yet again by those bastards of Airlock. God, how dare <laughs> they? <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, you are gonna. I mean, you would bump into, because you know there's some shared ownership between yes. Airlock now and uh, CyberCX where you work and you would actually run into some of their, yep. you would actually be testing into some of those customers environment sometimes right
1: yes and also we you know we eat our own dog food in that respect and also run airlock in our environments so yeah yeah, it's a yes we are familiar with each other (laughs) and each other's work hi guys
0: so yes stand by for that interview but adam thank you so much for joining us uh, as always and we'll do it all again next week
1: yeah thanks much pat i'll talk to you then
0: That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Airlock Digital's CEO, David Cottingham, and CTO, Daniel Schell. And as I said at the top of the show, this is a very interesting discussion. Airlock recently rolled out a feature that allows its users to restrict the execution of objects compiled by the Microsoft MSBuild compiler. And they got hits on blocked executions from APT crews as soon as they rolled this thing out. And it turns out that threat actors are using this quite a lot. And of course, by the time Airlock is blocking this, it's already slid past other preventative measures. So, uh, yeah, this is, this is interesting stuff. Uh, now, an interesting part of this is that David, who's the first person you'll hear here, uh, thinks that attackers are using this technique because they're expecting they'll have to bypass things like application control in Australian networks that are required to do allow listing via compliance regimes. Now, I think it's probably a broader strategy, but that is still an interesting thought. So here's Dave to kick off the discussion.
2: We're seeing in a lot of our customer bases, uh, attackers assuming that the organizations are running allow listing. So either they know that they've deployed allow listing, you know, with or without airlock, I'm not sure. But, it, you know, more of those resourced nation state attackers are just assuming allow listing by default, particularly in the APAC market. You know, we've got the essential Eight here, which mandates it for, for known industries and attackers go in saying, OK, well. I mean, it's,
0: it's essentially mandated in the Australian defense industrial base, isn't it?
2: That's correct. Yeah, exactly. So um, they come in and they're trying to come up with more ingenious techniques to try and stay off disc as much as possible. By the way, and-
0: when Dave says they, I'm just going to say it so you don't have to. He means China. Okay, I'm just going to say it. He means China <laughs> because that's who attacks the Australian defence industrial base. He can't say that. <laughs> I can. It's China. Go on, Dave. <laughs> Thanks,
2: Patrick. <Badger. laughs> <laughs> The, so the attackers have essentially gotten the machine remotely. Uh, you know, we, we saw them uh, get an account on the machine, drop a, uh, essentially a text file and, and paste code into it and uh, called it a CS project, which is basically uh, XML code for a utility on the machine called Build, which is a, a .NET framework file that can compile code. It's, like a, it's a compiler that's, that's built into Windows. And what they did was they used Base64 encoded code inside that file And signature detection won't capture it because it's all encoded. And then they just called msbuild to compile it. And what it does is msbuild runs in memory, it compiles that DLL, and it it reflects it straight back into the process that's done the compilation. And what that means is you never actually have a copy of that compiled code on disk. So signature detection can't, can't detect it. And... When you look at task list in in memory you 're actually only seeing trust in Microsoft processes right unless you 're going down to the DLL level, which is by that time if you figure that out you 're already doing incident response and you've you know you 've got some decent capability to do it
0: but like this this is very much the approach to getting around endpoint controls right is is doing something like this or trying to pop some sort of uh, code exec into a scripting environment like we saw that with Microsoft equation editor and whatever like that was a gold mine and you know trying to punch through stuff like java like this is another similar approach where you're trying to you know execute code indirectly i guess
2: that's correct it's you know it's system you know feature abuse i guess and um you know, we used Airlock detects that because we're looking at binary ref- reflection as well, uh, you know, particularly for all .NET classes. So a significant amount of time that we spend engineering internally is actually now just chasing all of these extra techniques to make sure that, you know, you can't load code in around the solution. So we're seeing a lot of that, you know, particularly since we rolled that feature out about, you know, 18 months ago now uh, inside our customer environments. Interesting MS bill calls.
0: You started seeing it once you started measuring it, did you?
2: <laughs>
0: funny <laughs> yes. how that works, isn't yeah, it? it's funny.
2: Funny, Yeah, that's it. So, um, But it's just interesting that that's just the default approach of attackers now. They're assuming you're even running something like allow listing, which still... Well, you... do you
0: think that's the assumption? Because I would think this would be quite a useful thing to do when you're going up against EDR as well, right? Like in terms of not spawning the... a new process and not, you know, like it's useful.
2: That's a good point. That's a good point. And I guess as an attacker, you never actually want to leave your... Um, you know your code on disk, because in an incident response scenario, then you can see the code and get the tools.
0: Yeah, I mean this complicates everything. It complicates incident response too, right?
3: Yeah, that's true.
2: Yeah, no, it's a good
3: point.
0: It's not all about you, Dave. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, fair
3: enough. Yeah, you know, and and these methods in particular, so there's so little logging around them, right? And and there's nowhere to hook. You can't. You can't go. Oh, did a load of debug but not hooking load library. You didn't do these. You know. There's no telemetry on some of these things that make, you know, the EDRs can gobble up to make nice detections on. Um, you know, the MSBuild thing is, you know, it's been a known thing for many years. It's been because it's been a, member, a part of the Microsoft recommended block rules, MSBuild.exe. But th- that's always f- fallen into those categories of, oh, yeah, it's easy to put it on a list. <laughs> but look how many times it gets cold on day-to-day usage in an enterprise environment that you can't just go, yeah. oh, you just block it. So,
0: so you put controls around that, do you?
3: Yeah, well, so we we we, we can now see that for our .NET reflection capabilities.
2: Yeah, we see the pro. We, we actually stop the reflection of the untrusted thing rather than the actual process of MS Build because MS Build just happens. So it's like what results from that, and then stop that artifact. So you can at least trust the the trusted things that are running through MS Build rather than just cutting off that entire feature behavior.
0: Daniel, how does EDR actually treat this stuff? It depends. <laughs> I'll,
3: yeah. you and I can't probably talk exactly to it in most cases. you know the the behavior will be different because it'll be more like this ms build process new connection to a known indicator. yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's that you'll you'll go back to like conversational behavioral detections. versus maybe signature, but oh well, yeah, and same. I mean, you
0: know Dimitri... Uh, you know, he's got nothing to do with CrowdStrike anymore, but he's a friend of mine and we obviously, you know, talk about this sort of stuff a lot. And uh, it's really interesting when you talk to him because he always talks about EDR as an instrumentation and detection platform, not as an endpoint prevention, (laughs) you know, like an endpoint security, like prevention platform. But I guess, yeah, you know, the advantage here is that you know, instead of just spawning off a of detection, I mean, you're just blocking this by default, right?
3: Yeah, for sure. But like, you know, like um, something we're going to talk about today, this is a good segue maybe, is, you know, like in Australia, everyone's trying to get that maturity level three, right? Which is, it involves like, hey, you need to do the Microsoft recommended block rule. So our customers have requirements or compliance requirements to actually prevent MS build from running. But as I said before, it's not something that you can just easily just do in most environments. Um, so yeah. you know what a lot of our customers are doing is once they've got sort of their basic allow listing under control you know they're then moving to this hardening phase where mm. they'll sort of then start observing when does ms build run in our environment under what context what user <laughs> you know all the other components around that execution and then they'll go okay great well yeah, you we knew we do we do need to block this but these are the situations where it legitimately runs and then they'll make rules in airlock to allow that to occur in that situation but otherwise block it so you know if ms build is run by someone in the admin group that's something not allowed in certain situations or saying along those lines like you know it depends again how you're seeing it manifest in your environment
0: so this is what you're describing as like the once you've done your allow listing it's all up and running like this is this is getting onto the exotic end of it
3: yeah for sure and it's also the case where you know often we went up in an interesting situation a lot of the times where someone there'll be some new hotness right where people go oh you know help files you know the old windows help files yeah 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 that's suddenly back in fashion and you know you can run script in there um and, that's it you can still run script in there yeah yeah um, so then they'll be like okay well maybe i just want to block that entire class and they'll just block the http interpreter being called and again they'll and then they'll find it somewhere in their environment being called legitimately and they'll go okay well allow from this app or something like that but yeah. it's, it's like a bit of a tuning thing that you reach at that stage Often with Airlock, like, HTA files are eternal, it seems, um, hmm. where, you know, and the Microsoft recommended block list rules are, hey, block HDA. but I could probably list 30 to 40 customers where they couldn't do that. They actually have legitimate HTA apps. You wouldn't believe it until you saw it.
0: Um, <laughs> Isn't that the whole point of Airlock, though, is being able to manage those exceptions?
3: Yeah, well, well, it is. And then in this case, you know, with Airlock, you can actually manage those HTAs, as in so you can actually approve those apps and those apps, yeah. you know, so that allows you to approve those individually. But then customers will still go, well, it's still a risk or saying all those lines. So again, we just want to block in general, just in case we did say wrong or there's some other tricky way of doing it. We want, we want that class covered.
0: So um, in terms of the type of activity that you were talking about earlier, Dave, these sort of you know, more skilled end attackers whose country of origin shall not be mentioned, are they actually evolving their techniques around this or is this just standard workaday stuff they've been doing for years
2: I, uh, from what i've seen it's standard workaday stuff yeah i mean it's the same it, it's rolled out in a playbook and you can see that by generally the mistakes that are made along the way during the attack chain
0: let me guess every single bunch of blocks that you see in an airlock log it's the same sequence right
2: it is, yeah, it's the same playbook, and and also even things like in in corporate environments, you know, it's things like configuring proxies. Like the attackers need to figure out, okay, how do I get my you know remote connection back out of the environment? And uh, sometimes you see them just, oh, I can't get the proxy to work. I don't know why. And you know, they'll they'll spend ages hammering on that until they might finally give up, or um, you know, and it's it's just it's an actor that's given a playbook to go achieve an objective. You know, get um you know access. Uh, assurance inside an org, and then um, you know, come back in to actually then start doing the information on mm. post. Now, that. generally speaking,
0: yeah. too, when this sort of technique enters an environment, I'm guessing EDR probably doesn't stop it; it just flags it, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, typically that's that's usually the it should be rising those alerts up to the top, and you should be you know seeing that activity as 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 high as all criticals and things that you should yeah. pay attention to. Yeah, yeah.
0: But it's not actually preventing those ones. Uh,
2: yeah, I haven't. Uh, by the time Airlock sees it, usually you've got either file execution on disk or a techniques being successful, right? So, um, yeah, 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 and, 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 can, and
3: can be <laughs> yeah. tricky to to know for sure. Airlock blocks it sooner than it would have, than it may have been blocked anyway. No, no, hundred no, sure. percent.
0: Like, I'm not intending this to to be uh, a criticism of EDR. Um, I any specific EDR. I was just curious to know, like, because if you are if you are trying to write something that's making decisions and this is this this is the thing right this is why you need a configurable prevention suite like airlock is because it's not possible as an edr edr manufacturer to set up a bunch of a bunch of rules and conditions for how you handle yeah. stuff like ms build in yeah. your yeah. environment and have that successful at every enterprise that's kind of the point that i was getting to i you appreciate
2: know? the challenge at scale of writing a high fidelity <laughs> detection <laughs> that works for everyone yeah.
0: <laughs> Yes, yeah, exactly, right, and that's and that's kind of like the the power of rolling your own little you know set of controls airlock style.
3: Yeah, mm. and and you know, and what you see in airlock is that you know the MS build or something that that sort of technique gets blocked. The attacker suddenly is a bit unsure what to do, so they try a few other things. And you know, you're making they're making a bit of noise there. Now they're trying a Java thing, like okay, now they're trying this thing, and you're know, like they're, they're just like like they're in the dark hitting walls because they don't know where they yeah. are
0: i mean there will be a way off that i remember talking to you guys years ago about like i mean there may have been a little bit of like giggling uh about someone a, a red teamer very competent who got given local admin on a box with airlock that was quite well configured and it took him two days to get off it <laughs> yeah, yeah it took him two days to um, get yeah. and, and and that would have been a frustrating couple of days so
3: yeah and and two days is a lot of noise yeah. on the console of everything you tried that didn't work right Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Then, look, the EDR is still important, right? Like, you know, if you have this machine, if you have this machine that says MS Build is blocked on my <laughs> domain controller, and you're like, huh, okay, Um, you know, you still want to ha- know how those run and trace that tree back, and you know, you, that that capability, you know, we we're not doing that full trace from end to end, Um, and you know, we've we you know we partner with vendors such as CrowdStrike where they click the little falcon on the execution airlock block, and that walks them back up the call tree in the Falcon platform which is really useful and work out yeah. how they got in, in the first place.
0: Yeah, no, no, as I say, it wasn't a criticism of EDR, it's more like, well, you can't really do that with EDR, I guess is, is, was more my point, Yeah, right? Like, I wouldn't recommend yeah. anyone runs Airlock without some sort of endpoint instrumentation as well because um, you're flying blind at that point. But anyway, that was a really interesting conversation. Daniel Shell, David Cottingham, thank you so much for joining us on the show and thank you for your continued sponsorship of the Risky Business Podcast. Cheers, guys.
3: <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. Anyways, cheers, Patrick.
0: That was Daniel Shell and Dave Cottingham from Airlock Digital there. Uh, but yeah, that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow uh, with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business Podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.